everyone. I'm Trisha Bell. Hi, I'm Georgie Young. And welcome to CTE Talk, a podcast where we talk all about CTE, concussion culture and sport, and life as a family member. Every Monday, we will be joined by guests to shed light on the neurological disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Join us on our mission to raise awareness and educate others. Sylvia Mackey, thank you so much for joining us on CTE Talk today. We met quite a few years back at Gridiron Greats. I think we were both um, advocates at that time and helping out. That's correct. Yes. And so I'm so happy to have you here today and thank you for joining us. And would you like to just go ahead and tell us um, your story with John as as his cognitive decline started? I'd be more than happy to. And thank you for inviting me to be on your program today. Um, I was looking forward to it because I never knew what CTE was. My story is not a CTE story. It's a frontal temporal dementia story. And after he was... um, after he passed away and I donated his brain, they discovered some CTE in the back of his head. Okay, yes. CTE falls under the wide spectrum of um, dementia. It is, in my opinion, a type of dementia because the behavior and the brain, the behavior is crosses lines. Let me put it that way. Every person seems to have it differently. But anybody who tells you that they have CTE, if they're telling you I have it, they don't know. That's true. Okay. Every 10 years of his life after football, something that stood out in my mind. At the time, I didn't know why it stood out, but it's something you don't forget. Um, I remember the first was he was elected to be the Syracuse Alumni Person of the Year. He had a huge speech to give in acceptance. He worked on it for weeks and the day came for him to leave, to go to give this speech. He got, we got to the door and he turned around and he said, I'm not going. I was floored and he had a blank stare in his eye that, um, that it was the blank stare that I read about that many people with dementias, and I say dementias because it covers a broad uh, spectrum, including CTE. Um, I couldn't believe it, but there was nothing I knew that I could do about it to change his mind that would make him turn around to go. And of course, when people started calling, I said he had taken ill and very sorry he couldn't show up. Uh, Then 10 years later, I'm in a room with him. He gets a phone call. He hangs up and then I hear him call another person and he says, hey, man, my mom just kicked over. That means she died. And I couldn't believe he hadn't said anything to me. I turned around, I looked at him, and there was that same eerie blank stare again. Mm -hmm. And that just stood out in my mind, but I'm still not thinking that something is mentally wrong with him. I'm thinking he's just trying to be macho and he doesn't want to admit that he could cry or that this is bothering him, which, by the way, I've never seen him cry in my life. He never did. Um, Then he began doing things like wearing two hats. By that, I meant literally wearing one hat and putting another hat over uh, on top of that. And then I noticed that he'd stopped taking a shower. And then he started lying that he uh, hadn't taken a shower. Um, he would say, oh yeah, I showered then, but I, then I could go right in the shower and everything was dry. Um, then one day I realized, I said, 
we need a one of us needs a regular job that gives a regular paycheck with a from a big corporation that has health benefits and it was like he didn't get it so then there was an ad in the la times employment section for bilingual flight attendants i said i'll show him this will let me test my french and i'll go on this interview and i went on the interview uh, i'm gonna inter interrupt you tell tell the tell our listeners what age you were when this when you start had to start this new career i, I started at 56 years old so I got the job and they said, you have to go to training. I said, how long? And they said, two months, great. I'll be away from him for two months and that'll give him time to get himself together and think about what he should be doing. Well, when I came back home, he was worse. That wasn't mm -hmm. the case. So 9-11 um, happened and that gave me the opportunity to have him diagnosed. He was 59 years old. I guess I've been flying three years. So when I had him diagnosed and they told me it was frontal temporal dementia with severe shrinkage of the left temporal lobe, mm -hmm. actually, I was relieved. It was okay. There is something wrong. It's scientific. I know that, I, that what I have to do, I have to read everything I can about this disease so that I will know, can plan our future because it's not going to be the same as we had thought in the beginning. I knew I had to have a good quality of life. Um, and I knew if I moved to Baltimore, he could function for five or six years, signing autographs, greeting fans, going to football games, uh, being active socially in the community for a while. And he was, it was the best move I ever made. Never in my life would I ever thought I'd be moving back to Baltimore, Maryland. And other good things happened here too. My daughter met her husband. I have a beautiful grandson from with her. Oh that. wow. Yeah. So um she was living in California also, my youngest daughter. Mm -hmm. Two years later, she moved here to help me with him. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a good life actually for both of them, for her to bond with her dad, even though we were losing him. But socially, she could keep him active while I went to work. Right. His behavior became such that he was, oh, first of all, he was never violent. He became so sweet. He called me sweetheart <laughs> more times after diagnosis of, di of dementia than he did in the whole first 41 years that we were married. Oh, wow. Right. I heard <laughs> I love you more times after that than one year one through 41. So anyway, um, he I knew that eventually he wouldn't want, wouldn't want to take a shower at all. I couldn't even get him in the shower. So I had to come up with little tricks. So I discovered that anything mandated by the NFL would get him to do anything I, I wanted him to do. <laughs> so I came up with NFL shower day and that would get him in the shower. Oh, I was supposed to take a shower today? Yes. And as that became more difficult, I would tell him that Paul Tagliabue, the commissioner, was going to call to see if he took a shower. And if he did, he'd send him a check for $100. He went what? for it. That's yes. amazing. Let me go back to, now that I've mentioned Paul Tagliabue, forgive me for jumping around, but it goes like oh, that. Oh, no. No, I like it. <laughs> okay, part of... John's enjoying life was taking him back to the Hall of Fame every single year. 
And when I was at the hall, I saw other players with uh, Alzheimer's. In fact, Pete Theos told me, he said, Sylvia, they said there's something wrong with me. They said, I have something called Alzheimer's. I, I talked to his wife. Yes, he did. Other wives would approach me with a look on their face because I came, I didn't hide anything about John. Everybody knew something was wrong with him and that it was uh, some kind of dementia. They would approach me and I could tell before they would even open their mouth that they were going to ask me, what did I see in John that led me to have him diagnosed? And yeah. they were asking because they wanted to know what might be wrong with their husband. So there were so many that I thought this is not a coincidence. That's when I wrote the letter to Paul Tagliabue and said, who would it hurt for you to help these guys who are the foundation of the league to keep them from leaving this earth with no dignity and no money because in the United States, healthcare is something that can wipe a family out financially, totally. Mm -hmm. And um, I put all kinds of feelings about what I felt about what the lack of health, that kind of health care could do. And he said he read my letter to his wife and she cried. And oh. yeah, and the next day, it was, well, it was so quick. Within the week, they had already put together the 88 plan named after my husband's football number. Instead mm -hmm. of the John Mackey plan, they called it the 88 plan, which was perfect. Um, they sent somebody to my home the day before the news came out in USA Today that uh, they had a plan for all players with Alzheimer's and uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. Then Paul was leaving. Uh, he was retiring because, and I said, oh, Paul, you have one more great thing to do. You've been a great commissioner, but you have one more great thing to do. You have to provide a benefit for these players. And he did. And then when Roger took over, I was getting calls from wives whose husbands had ALS and Parkinson's. And I said, Roger, we have to add two more. So Roger Goodell added um, ALS and Parkinson's to the 88 plan. And he saw to it, there was also a provision for the prices to go up because healthcare prices are just off the chain in the United States. That 88 plan was, was such a godsend for so many families. I, I I know I'm I find out when I go to different events some people have walked up to me and hugged me crying saying you don't know Sylvia what you did for my family it's overwhelming sometimes you know mm -hmm. and I know because we were recipients of it I don't know what I would have done if I had to put out what seven or eight thousand dollars a month when I had to send John to a, a facility towards the end because we couldn't take care of him any longer at home Plus at home, they were paying for the nurse who came in. There'd be no way I could have done it by myself after a certain point. Another thing I prepared for was incontinence. I knew eventually that would come. And you have to be prepared for it. I would say almost 100% of the time, no adult wants to believe that their adult uh, person that whom they're taking care of. Anyone taking care of somebody with any kind of dementia needs to know that incontinence is coming. But all I saw when I would speak at different places was the frustration of families that when it would happen to their loved one, they would get become angry with the person. 
for messing, you messed up my sofa, you did this, you did that. And it's, so to remedy that, I went out and bought a big pack of adult underwear. And I told John, look what the NFL sent. An, a new <laughs> underwear for retired players. Oh, wow. he was excited. He could hardly get the package open. He opened it up. He tried them on. He said, I got to try it on right now. He goes over to the mirror and he went, hey, these are nice. And he oh them every day. So it, he didn't become incontinent for maybe another year and a half, but he wore these every day. So when it happened, I was prepared. I wasn't angry. You, you, you got to remember, I tell caregivers that when the, when the patient frustrates you, it's not the person, it's the disease. So that's the most important thing to remember. He wouldn't want to be doing that. He wouldn't, if he only knew. I was going to ask you, Sylvia, or yes. make a statement actually that I'm glad we brought up the 88 plan because so many people think that these players are taken care of for the rest of their lives and that I, I their health care or or you know anything like that unfortunately now, there's still so much to fight for i'm sorry yeah. trish you wouldn't ask me a question go ahead well i was just gonna say it's now it's better you know but um that was basically it and also just to say that the 88 plan also started at eighty-eight thousand a year yes. for healthcare, and now i think it's like close to two hundred thousand. yes they, they have to, of course, because as health care rises, health care costs mm. rise so, so fast. Mm -hmm. Yes. Does the 88 plan subsidize kind of all of those medical fees that you're paying out as a caregiver and for, for scans and for medication? Right. And for the people who have to come in and take Very care good. of your loved one. And mm -hmm. some who do not go to facilities might stay at home. You need somebody 24 hours a day. So you need three people on eight hour shifts. Mm -hmm. And the plan uh, takes care of that. So, yeah. I mean- Up to a certain amount and it's reimbursable, but it, it's wonderful that they do that. They get the checks out pretty quickly and- That's so what yeah. I understand. I've heard very few complaints. I've heard some complaints, but um, I, in fact, I don't even remember what the complaints were, but. There's way more good things than, than or it could never be bad about that, so. I was just gonna say, no, I've heard a lot of people say how great the plan is and how much it's helped them. Um, but I just wondered if we could go back to kind of your husband. Did, was he on any medic medication? It's, oh yes, he was on several medications. I can't name what they were. Uh, I remember Namenda. Uh, when he first became ill, that was only being sold in Germany. And I followed its progress to be, uh, what is it, sanctioned for the United States. And as soon as it was, I mentioned it to his uh, psychiatrist and his geriatric psychiatrist. And he said he put John on to Namenda. I thought that was, how do you know? What's good? Nothing is going to save their life. Mm -hmm. Nothing is going to stop. The progression so it's hard to measure what slow is and what or if they're going down fast mm -hmm. um it, it's difficult mm -hmm. eventually when he did have to go to a facility it was near my home it had a great reputation uh one of the one good thing the staff never changed 
that mm. mean the people who work there were always the same. Other places, that's one thing you have to look out for. If there's a fast turnover of employees, uh, then when you're visiting, you look at how the other employees treat other patients. I went to one place before we put John in for his last for the last two years. And there was one gentleman who always had his face down on the table, except when his family was coming to visit and they would fix him up and make him look really good. So I didn't mm -hmm. like that. It, at where John was, they took care of every patient all the time. They brought in entertainment. They had parties. They even made a scrapbook of John's past and gave it to him and he would look at that and just love it to see what he had done when he played football. They took all the pictures they could find off the internet and made oh. a book, made a book for him. So I always felt comfortable with when I was there and became friends with the staff and it was good. Yeah. Yeah. Tell tell Georgia, tell our listeners in Georgia the story of um going through uh, metal detectors at airports oh and how innovative you were with this. I'll never forget that day. I knew he, he would have difficulty going through security at the airport. And that particular day he was on his way to make $5,000 in St. Louis at an autograph show. And I a private detective to go with me. And when John looked at TSA standing there in uniforms and the, what do you call the, the security booth? Uh, the not metal detector. God, I go, I see it every day I'm at work. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> the, anyway, he looked at them. It looked like there was an opening on the football field. He ran, ran mm -hmm. through it. And of course they tackled him, took three or four people, knocked him down and I'm screaming, don't kill him, don't kill him. Because I had just seen on television, um, a gentleman who was shot dead in Miami airport. And they were talking about how his wife uh, had been talking to him gently in his ear before they got on the plane. I don't know what he did, but he was, he had a mental illness. And, oh, that's another story. So when, when I saw that story, I uh, emailed CNN just because I was so touched by the way she talked to him was the way I talked to John when we were traveling. That they called me back at midnight and said they'd have a staff, a crew at my house the very next day to interview me about John and his, not CTE, but dementia. So I'm going back to what happened with John now. Yeah. Um, because it was Baltimore when John had that incident at the airport, instead of taking him to jail, they called an ambulance and took him to an emergency room of the nearest hospital. When we got to the hospital, he jumped out of the ambulance, went into the emergency room and started signing autographs. He did it so fast that when the help, when the nurses and the uh, came on the ambulance, they said, Mackie, I looked up at them and I said, yes. And they started giving me blood pressure, blood pressure. Um, they started taking my blood pressure. They thought I was the patient. I was a basket case. <gasps> I said, no, it's not I. It's the gentleman in there with the hat on who appears to be normal. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
right. <laughs> right. It was, it, I had never, and, and the private detective that I took to help, help me handle John, he's standing in the airport with his mouth open, like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. Wow. I know. Now, was the private detective like an ex uh, police officer or something? Yes, he was a, pr a friend, yes, but I paid him. Yeah. But, yeah. Mm -hmm. to, to just help you in case there are any issues. It, exactly. That's great. Yeah. Didn't you one time also have to um, call the airport ahead of time about yes. his Yes, dreams? we were going to the Super Bowl in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew we had to fly. We had taken the train to the Super Bowl in Miami, but Phoenix, we had to fly. And I said, there must be a way. I called, I don't know how I got in touch with them, but I called TSA in advance. And when we got to the airport, they met us at the curb. And they took him into a, pri in a room for private screening. And they shut down a lane for him to walk through that metal detector Mm -hmm. they, they closed that whole lane down and let him go through that. And I, that's what, another thing I tell people, be, a, be prepared ahead of time. TSA wants to get everybody through. Yeah, so it's like a concierge type of service. You just call them up and they will do that for people like John or anybody who with a mental illness that are going to be triggered by going through security. Exactly. And then to come back, of course, they the TSA here let them know what they were up against in Phoenix. But TSA being TSA and very smart, they couldn't do it the same way. They did because routine is what criminals get used to and prey on. So they they still they didn't really shut down a lane. They knew that he was coming, and I had a stack of pictures for him to autograph for the nice people that were helping him get through the airport. Oh. So, so to take off his shoes, I pulled the pictures out of my, because he said he wasn't taking off his shoes for anybody. I pulled the pictures out of my briefcase. I said, look, sit down and take and uh, do these um, and sign these autographs for these people. That distracted him. That took his mind off of what was going on. And as when he sat down, I reached behind his feet and snatched his shoes off like that and put them up on the conveyor belt. And he... <laughs> He barely realized what had happened and he went through and then that was fine. But they had to be prepared. I mean, I had to be prepared for whatever they might ask me to do. So that was trying to stay ahead of the game. And I thought of all kinds of distractions, like show the little kid your Super Bowl ring. That's another thing. He didn't want to take off his Super Bowl and Hall of Fame ring. So I said, hand me the rings. I want to show them to somebody. So he took them off, handed them to me, and they went through. And when they were on the other side, he, I gave them back to him. He didn't even know what happened. So, so I was going to say, it sounds like you were so prepared. But I just wondered, was there ever a situation you were in with John that you actually had no idea what to do or how to get out of the situation that you were in? I would say that was the, the first one. When I had uh, the when I'd hired the private detective to go with me, I knew to expect to be prepared for something, but I could not have been prepared for that. For him to run through the the metal detector, I it was shocking for everybody. Did he remember it? Not at all, because even when he got to the hospital, he didn't even know. <laughs> I was I became the patient. So.
So what age? I know you mentioned about those blank stares that he used to start noticing. Um, and I just wonder what age they prevailed and the age that he started demonstrating these different symptoms that were indicating he was suffering from some sort of dementia or suspected CTE? Good question. 35 for the first one, 45 when his mother passed, 55 when he was really, really acting weird, but we didn't, we weren't really sure what, that there was something wrong. We knew that we didn't want him to go to my brother-in-law's funeral because we didn't know what he might say. Um, and that was in the year 2000. So that was two years before his diagnosis. And then my neighbor one day said uh, to me, you know, I think John has Alzheimer's. And I didn't know what Alzheimer's was because this was a neighbor who kept his door unlocked all the time. And he said, every time he comes home from work, John is sitting in his living room <laughs> telling him the same story over and over. Oh, wow. Right. Um, he even made an off-color joke at an event with Jack Kemp mm. and his wife. And he's and Bo Derek, a lot of stars were there. And John and Jack said to me, Sylvia, I think there's something wrong with John. I think it's neurological. I didn't know what he meant. And yeah. he said, I'll pay for a neurological exam for him. I never followed up because it just didn't dawn on me that this was something serious. How many years we didn't talk about John's career much, but how many for our listeners that don't know, how many years did John play and at what age did he begin tackle or any type of contact sport? Um, he never was really hurt, but, oh, I believe that when he hit, took, scored a touchdown in an exhibition game against the, the Eagles, I was at, okay, I was at this game and he scored a touchdown and he ran into the goalpost and he hit his head on the left side up, up here. And he fell back on the ground. He hit it so hard. People at the whole stadium, they stood up and you could hear a heartbeat. Like, mm -hmm. is he all right? And he jumped up like a jack in the box and ran over to the Philadelphia Eagles bench and sat down. Everybody, the people were stunned. Our medical staff then ran across the field to get him. And I thought that was a defining moment but of course at that time you don't realize you're not thinking there could be something wrong you don't injuries then were like give him some smelling salts and if he can get up and walk he's okay in fact you're almost mm -hmm. going okay hurry up get back in the game yeah what age was that sorry Sylvia what age did that happen he must have been in his early or mid-20s Mid twenties because he played from 20, age twenty two to thirty one. And do you remember right. him having quite a few concussions within that point? No, no. But they say you can have these minor, whatever minor means, concussions, and you don't even know. Yeah. What do you think about the whole culture, the concussion culture in sport? Like you said a minute ago, that when John ran and sat down at the bench, it was almost like because he could walk over there he should automatically get straight back on the field and continue playing. But as we know that this is changing nowadays because of the conversations around CTE. Um, but I just wondered what your th thoughts were on the whole concussion culture in sport and the players needing to be strong and they can't show weakness, even if they are 
struggling from a concussion or or an injury to the head. No player wants a, a, somebody else to come in and take their place. They, they want them to do great, but they don't want to lose their position. They want to play. It's not just a macho thing. I mean, I in any job, you want to stay and keep working. And in football, you can be replaced. That's why they have backups. And you might not ever get back in. So there's the drive there, but now they're trying to teach players to preserve their future lives by you know, making sense of the whole thing and coming off the field and sitting down. One player retired, I forget who it was, just because he didn't want to suffer any more injuries. They said he could have played. Was it, was it Andrew Luck? I, I forget. There's been quite a few, but somebody yeah. just recently. Yes, yeah. I know who you're, I, I remember the story about him. Exactly. exactly. I took, I think I handled everything very well. That's why I enjoyed talking about it because I'm hoping that it, somebody else might listen and become less upset at the situation that they're in if they just look ahead, know what's coming, be prepared for it, and not pretend that certain things are not going to happen. I yeah. call that denial. Yeah, that is very good advice because there's so much to get prepared for. You've got power of attorneys to get and you have caregivers. Yes find and the right health care providers and mm -hmm. all of and what and how you're going to relieve yourself and get away from it and enjoy some downtime of your own and not constant care of a person mm -hmm. with dementia yeah do you think that's what helped you manage it well like obviously having to work because we hear a lot of people say how much they do struggle within the role and I can imagine that you did, but by the sounds of it, you were so rational and you knew kind of what needed to be done, bearing in mind you had zero information of what was actually happening to John. So I just wondered, do you think that's kind of a personality or your char personal characteristics that have helped you to remain so calm and understand how to navigate the situations that you went through with him? Yes. I, I, being my personality, yes. I never fall apart. I always try to know what the next step has to be so that I'm not caught by surprise yeah. because if preparation, that's all, pre and knowledge. I read everything I could about frontal temporal dementia and John's category fell under what they call PICS disease, P-I-C-K apostrophe S. All doctors, all neurological doctors know exactly what that is. And did he have the classic symptoms of uh, frontal temporal dementia and Pick's disease? Yes, classic. Yeah. classic. I mean, it was Pick's disease when I read the one through 11. I can't name what one of them is right now. Yeah. But, um, he had every single aspect of Pick's disease, which is a sub-disease of frontal, of FTD, frontal temporal dementia. Right. Right. With the NFL concussion settlement, that was one of the um, dementias that they could have, that, that they covered. Yes. Right. Yes. Neurologically, yes. Right. Um, so people sometimes don't know where to turn. And last night I was on a webinar where the doctor said you need, a doctor specializes in neurology. Some people start with a psychiatrist. Um, I'd started John with a psychiatrist. When I brought him in, when I brought John to this doctor, 
which by the way, every time I took John to the doctor, I had to say I was going to the doctor for me and that I wanted him to come along. Right. And he didn't even often, most of the time, he never understood the conversation between the doctor and me. And when he did, and he thought we were talking about him, he'd become angry. And then, but I know knew how to say, oh no, I didn't mean you, honey. I meant somebody else. And then he would calm down immediately. Mm. So I knew how to keep him calm. Another thing people don't know is they don't want to tell a lie. I spoke at a conference where there was a, a female minister in the audience who afterwards told me that it was a sin to lie. I said, not in this situation, it isn't. Not at all. If he thinks it's snowing outside, let him think it if it makes him happy. What do I care? This is exactly what you need to learn to do is to accommodate them, keep them calm, because when they're calm, then you're calm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, what do they call it? I think they call it uh, therapeutic fibbing. Oh, I like that. In the caregiver world, I've, I've yes. heard that. Okay, no, I haven't heard that. I like that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Perfect. You've got to do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Did you this find that? Did you find that like the healthcare professionals dealt with the John symptoms well? As in, I know that we, because obviously dementia, Alzheimer's, CTE, they're all invisible diseases and you can't really tell from the outside that someone's really suffering. So I just wondered what the, the healthcare professionals that you spoke to, what their reactions were when you went to speak to them about John's kind of changes in behavior. Well, I, th I thought you were gonna go in the direction of how they treat him when different healthcare people, when they are around him. Different healthcare people deal with different types of dementia. And it's impossible, I think, to find a healthcare person who understands it all. I remember when one lady <laughs> was insulted by something sexual John said to her. Didn't bother me at all, but it bothered her because it was like she wasn't used to it. But that's part of the disease. Um, telling off-color jokes, take, making fun of someone. Oh, I remember being at a cocktail party and a big fat guy walks up to John and I said to myself, oh my God, what's going to happen? John poked him in the stomach and said, man, you need to lose some effing weight. <laughs> I, mean, I was mortified. Oh my God. I said, he's not right up here. I said, don't, don't worry about it. You know? <laughs> so it's like, if I saw somebody's funny looking coming towards John, I'd try to steer John the other way. Oh I didn't know what he was going to say. Everything yeah. else, you all have to be on ra radar watching everybody. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And I had to watch him in stores. He would steal. He started stealing candy bars, mm. things like that. But we, some of the things are so funny, you just fall out laughing. And it's good for him. And it's good for us as caregivers mm -hmm. that we're all laughing at something funny he did because sometimes he didn't know how funny he was. <laughs> you know? And finally, I gave up on wearing the two. He had this cowboy hat and then he put a baseball cap on over it. And, and Laura, my daughter, would just, just let it go. <laughs> That's awesome. Would you wear it out in public and everything? Yes. Wow. Yes. Sometimes. 
sometimes yeah. we'd say we can't find the hat. We'd hide it. We can't find, <laughs> but his signature was his cowboy hat. Mm. So, or we'd say, oh, this really looks good just like this. You don't need that other one. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a favorite bar in the neighborhood that he would go to, and they were so respectful of John Mackey. He couldn't drink alcohol. And so they actually stocked non-alcoholic wine. And every time he would ask for a glass of wine, they would pour it from what they call John's wine. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that he could put his money down and leave his tip and everything to try to keep him as dignified as possible. No, yeah. he didn't know he would drink that non-alcoholic wine. He didn't know it was non-alcoholic. Wow. Right. That, that's Baltimore. Oh, the best part was you know that they're going to eventually get lost or wander off. And um, we took him to a football game. The Ravens are just wonderful. Steve Bashotti and the organization. Um, so we took, he had tickets for us for just about every game. And after the game, John got lost and caught up in the crowd. Now you can imagine 70,000 people leaving the stadium. Where is my husband with dementia? My daughter mm -hmm. was so upset. Mom, you got to call the police. You got to do this. She was almost in tears. I said, don't worry about it. I'm going to call home in an hour and I bet you he answers the phone. And he did. I called home in 45 minutes. He answered the phone. Now keep in mind, he'd been with us all day at the stadium. Mm -hmm. But he said, I've been home all day waiting for you. Mm -hmm. and some fan brought him home. He knew his address. And I'm sure that fan was delighted to take John Mackey home. I'll never know who that was. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And you knew, you knew somebody would take care of him. You knew he would oh, get Oh yeah. Home. I said, let me, that's why I moved back to Baltimore. Not only would he be familiar with Baltimore, but if he got lost, somebody on the street would recognize him and bring him home. That's how big that's a fan that, uh, we are, we have here in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Then at one of the games, they honored the former Baltimore Colts who were in the Hall of Fame. They had them on the field at halftime. And they gave each one of them an honorary ball. This was Lenny Moore, Jim Parker, Art Donovan, Raymond Berry, and John Mackey. There were five of them. When they gave John his football, he took off running because they were all seated in chairs at the 50-yard line. He jumped and ran through the goalpost, and the stadium went wild. Oh, and wow. While they were handing them the football, they would show a film of them running back in the day. And John matched his step by step. They had the film of him running in the Super Bowl when he scored the 75-yard touchdown. And none of the other players did that. So that that was the whole that was the talk of the day and on TV that night. That's an amazing said, memory. <laughs> yeah, he would say, anyway, well, when you hand the ball, you're supposed to run with it. So that was a great moment for us. Mm -hmm. My grandkids were worried to death. Oh, my God, what's going to happen? I said, Ben, don't worry about it. So that well, was it's, it's, it's lovely how many great memories you have. And it's been so lovely to hear your side, Sylvia. And even though it's such a sad experience, it, it's been really refreshing to hear such a lighthearted side to a story and it's been like I said really lovely to hear about taking in every moment and just being present with your loved one and making it fun and not putting too much pressure on yourself and being prepared and I think this is the first story where we've really heard that perspective so I think all of our listeners will really like that I, I just wondered 
to finish up, have you got a final bit of advice that you'd like to give someone who may be a caregiver or, or someone going through the situation at the moment? Calm down. That's what I would say. Calm down. Be knowledgeable. That's everything. That's just what we were talking about yesterday also. Know what's coming ahead and have your plans lined up for that. That And do everything you can to make everything easier on yourself. That, that would be the main advice that I could give because once you have knowledge, then you follow what you've learned and act on it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Knowledge yeah. is power, isn't it? And I definitely think that this episode is going to bring a lot of people some great knowledge. So thank you so much, Sylvia, for coming on and sharing your story of yourself and John navigating through the challenges associated with um, playing in the NFL and having con uh, playing in contact sport. Oh my gosh. Thanks for inviting me. It it's a pleasure to talk about it really. If it helps one person. Thank you, Sylvia. And I hope you have a Here's wonderful you. rest of your day and we will talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you okay. so much, Sylvia. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That is the end of today's episode, everyone. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next week, Monday at eight o'clock for the next episode of CTE Talk. I hope everyone has a great week as usual and we will see you later. Bye.